Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another episode of Felony Friday, right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. The Lions of Liberty podcast, of course, has more than one show, more than Felony Friday. We also have a show every Monday hosted by Mark Clare, our longest-running program, where he interviews leading minds in the liberty movement, hosts roundtable discussions. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams, a weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And every Friday, this show, Felony Friday, where I focus on exposing injustice in this nation's very broken criminal justice system. And even on Felony Friday, on this show itself, it's a bit of a variety program, a couple different formats that I have. The past two episodes, I interviewed a former felon, Jamel Nettles. He shared his story, his from growing up in a drug culture to dealing drugs to eventually getting shot, eventually getting arrested, sent to prison, spending 11 years in prison and telling the story of his experience, an incredible story, which was a two-part episode that was the last two episodes on Felony Friday. So I want to encourage you to go back and check that out if you haven't, because it is a very, very impactful story. And also, other, other formats of Felony Friday include bringing on former cops or activists or media personalities to to talk about their experience in the criminal justice system and what they would do to to change it. And also I'll bring on um, other members here at Lions of Liberty to talk about felonies trending in the news, important criminal justice issues, and also occasionally I'll host a, a solo show here on Felony Friday. But this week's episode, this is another edition where I'm going to be interviewing a former felon, someone who has been through the criminal justice system and has come out on the other side to share their story. And I'll be interviewing Ramona Brandt. This week's story with Ramona, very different than my last two-part episode with Jamel Nettles. But just as important and just as impactful because Ramona is sharing a story that is all too common. There's a lot of women who have very similar stories, who have walked the same shoes as, as Ramona, went to prison on conspiracy charges like Ramona spent Way, way, way too much time in prison. And Ramona, it's great that she's out to come out and share her story. This story here, this interview here with Ramona Brandt, this issue needs a light shined on it because nobody is talking about it. This is the 89th episode of Felony Friday. That means you'll be able to find the show notes page with links and notes to everything that I talked about today with my guest, Ramona Brandt at lionsofliberty.com slash FF89. Let's get this interview rolling. My guest today on Felony Friday is Ramona Brandt. In 1995, Ramona was sentenced to life in prison for a cocaine offense related to her then-boyfriend's drug dealing. At her sentencing, the judge said that he was shocked at the severity of the sentence, but at that time, there was no legal way that he could do anything about her sentence. Now, Ramona spent 20 years in prison before finally being commuted by President Obama in 2015, and she was released into a halfway house in February 2016. 
And in March 2016, she actually met with President Obama and went to a special lunch for commutation recipients um, after meeting with the president. Ramona is currently the PR director of the Can-Do Guardian Angel Program that has paired over 40 in Guardian Angels with approximately 50 clemency applicants. And the way I found out about Ramona's story is from former guest on this podcast, Amy Pova. Amy is the founder of the Can-Do Foundation, and she brought uh, Ramona's story to my attention. And once I read about it, once I heard about it, I knew that I had to bring her on. So, Ramona, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for making some time in your schedule to come on Felony Friday and share your story uh, with our audience. Um, I think it's a very important story, very important to to talk about this, to talk about the injustice that, that you have suffered from. And the first place that, that I really want to start, the first thing I want to ask you about, I did see uh, when you were released from prison, there was a a video. They, they documented your release. And that was such a such a powerful thing to see um, you being released from prison, being welcomed by family and friends. And I, I mean, I'll admit that was I mean, that was emotional for for me to watch somebody that doesn't even know you personally. I can't even imagine the feelings that, that you were feeling at that time. So can, can you just explain what, what that was like, what, what you felt at that time to finally taste freedom after 20 years in prison? A lot of uh, mixed emotions. Um, to walk to the gate, I was walking to the gate and with the guards and they were talking and congratulating me for um, my freedom and, you know, believing that when I came out, I was going to be fine and, when we got to the gate and I was ready to walk through, I hesitated because for 21 years, you never approach a gate. You never just walk through the gate without being handcuffed and shackled. And so I became nervous. I wasn't sure what would happen if I crossed through. And so they said, Ramona, go ahead. You're free. Go ahead. And so I walked out and I stood still on the other side of the gate, just trying to come to terms with the fact that I had just stepped into my freedom after 21 years, after all the prayers, the tears, the hopes, the pleading. Um, here I was. I was a free person. And my family was standing across the street. They didn't move and I didn't move. And finally, the guard said, Ramona, call your family over. I was able to touch nieces and nephews for the first time in the free world. They'd visit me in prison, but because they were born after I was incarcerated, it was just such a different feeling to be able to hold them, to touch them, to just embrace them without having someone tell me that's enough, go sit down. Um, seeing people that I hadn't seen my entire time of incarceration, was it was overwhelming. Um, and then to stop and see the faces that were missing, my mother, my father, my brother. It was hard. So I went through a lot within the first few moments of my freedom that I never realized would happen to me. But um, elation, sadness, happy, hurting, just so much that happened within those first few moments. So we kind of started at the end, talking about the end of your sentence. Um, let's go back and talk about the beginning 
how you ended up in that situation in, in the first place. I, I relocated to Charlotte, North Carolina from New York in um, 88. I met my children's father in 89 and um, we started dating. Um, and it was different. It was um, a totally different relationship than any that I had before. And so I, I really thought he was the one. I thought he was, the, you know, I was going to settle down with this guy and get married and, you know, have children and everything just seemed like it was just normal, natural. It was, I was supposed to be with him and I became pregnant and he became abusive. When I was pregnant with our first child, um, he just punched me for no reason. Was, I, I couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand the expression on his face. It was different. It was sort of distorted. I, I, I didn't know what to think. And so I, I returned home immediately to New York. And um, he kept coming to New York and pleading with me, extremely apologetic to myself, to my parents, to my entire family, and promised he would never do it again. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll give him another chance. And I, I returned back to Charlotte. Everything was fine until we became pregnant with our second son. And um, it, it was like 20 times worse the abuse and I didn't know what to do. I was helpless. I, I I didn't want to tell my family because I was ashamed. Um, I trusted him and I, and I just felt so betrayed to have him doing this to me again. And so the abuse just escalated from there and he was into drugs. Um, I found out just how involved he was when one day he left the house and I was fed up. I said, I got to get out of here. This is my time to escape. And I found some money and I took the money. I got my sons and got on the road. Well, he sent people at this time. My, my oldest brother was living here and his family was here. And he took, he sent his goons in there to beat my brother up in front of his family and then sent word that if I didn't come back, he was going to send goons to New York to be my mother. And so I, I, I was petrified and I returned. And when I returned, I felt like I was incarcerated. I felt like I was in prison in my own home. I couldn't leave without someone traveling with me because he was afraid that I would call the police on him. Um, and even during the time that I was away, that I, when I left him, I did tell the police, but the police didn't do anything to help me. And another on another occasion, I was able to get out the house, and I went to a police. I saw a police not too far from the house, and I told him about him. He was like, ma'am, I'm busy. I can't help you. So at that point, I told us the police is not going to help me. Who do I turn to? Who's going to help me in this situation? And um, so I was stuck there. When he was arrested, I thought that I had just been freed. I was, I remember saying, thank you, God, I'm free from my prison that I was in. And it took up until about a year before they decided to indict me. Um, all the guys in the case decided to take the plea agreement. 
And according to what they agreed upon, that their girlfriends would not be indicted. So that's why they took the plea agreement. And I was thankful before my children's father, and he didn't care. He said he didn't want me. He didn't want anybody else to have me. So he refused the plea agreement. I didn't understand the law. I didn't understand that um, you don't take the government to trial. You don't, you don't, you, you just accept the plea agreement and go sit down and wait your time. I didn't understand that as an American citizen, I really didn't have any rights. I had to surrender them to the prosecuting attorney. Um, when I decided not to take the plea agreement, I was told that the prosecuting attorney said that she would see to it that I spend the rest of my life in prison if it was the last thing she did. And so the guys came and they testified and they testified to the fact that I was there. No one said I sold drugs. They just said I was there. And because of that, I was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole with a five-year supervisory um, probation upon release if I was to be released. That's just an inc- incredibly sad story. So talking about when during the trial, when these guys are going up and testifying against you, saying that you were there, if, if you just think back in time to, to during that time, when you were there, when you were in the car during you know, during these drug deals or whatever, or if you were answering a phone or something, did it ever cross your mind that you could be prosecuted for that at a later point in time? No, I, I never thought that. I never thought that. There were times that he would have to drag me literally to the car when he was ready to go on his trips. There were times that I would jump out of the car and try to get away from him for the fear of going to prison, for the fear of being caught with him, with his drugs, and going to prison. He would put a gun in my pocketbook. I've never held a gun, never shot a gun, didn't know what to do with a gun, and was scared, just scared, like, oh, my God, what what if the police stop us, or what if somebody see it? I'm, you know, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my son? And of course, the guys, for the most part, I, they told the truth. I was there. I was there when they would come to the house. I was there. If I would hand them whatever was needed to be handed, but it wasn't money exchange. Like he might say, here, so-and-so is coming over. Just give that to him when he comes to the door and I would give it to him. That was the truth. But I wasn't sitting there at the table conspiring, saying, this is what we're going to do. Let's do this. Let's go. Let's buy. That wasn't my place. It wasn't my role in what was going on. I never sat down with these people and agreed upon doing what they did. Um, the majority of the time I was being forced to, to be present. And that's why initially they were going to give me the duress and coercion um, the, down with departure because the hospital records proved the abuse, the police records proved the abuse. And so they, I just felt totally abused, not only by my co-defendant, but by the system. Um, I was promised no jail time. I arrived at the court to take the plea. And they said, oh, by the way, you're going to have to do some jail time. But nobody could tell me how much jail time I was going to have to do. And I believe it was based upon the type of story that I would be able to tell concerning my co-defendant. How much information did I know? Who was he dealing with? I had to give somebody up in order to receive the downward departure because that's how it works. 
And I didn't have anybody to give up. I didn't know who he was dealing with. I was stuck. And I said, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to take it to trial. I, I'm just believing that I'll take it to trial and I'll win. But I did and I lost. So, so did they, they never offered you a plea deal then? They said, take the plea and we'll work the details out later. I said, no, we need to work the details out now. I need to know what the deal is. I need to know what time, what type of, you told me I wasn't going to do any time in prison. That was the agreement. So now you're changing it. Someone needs to explain to me. I said, you know, maybe I watch too much TV. 5 to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to life. What am I facing? Just take the plea and we'll figure it out later. It's absolutely incredible. Um, the, your your story, uh, it just highlights what is broken in our criminal justice system. I mean, what possible good? And there's the answer is none. No good can come from from locking a mother in prison for for, for doing nothing wrong. I mean, there, there's there's no victims. All you did, you were you were present in a situation where someone was breaking the law. Your your, your then boyfriend was breaking the law. But most of the time that you were present, it was really against your will. You didn't want to be there, and there was documentation showing that that you were abused. So it is just incredible that. I mean, these how, how do these prosecutors sleep at night? That's what I want to know. That's I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how they sleep. I wonder how judges, and, and, and it's not all judges, because I've met judges that that oppose these mandatory minimums, that, that was against sentencing people to these outrageous sentences. They, were, they did not want to do it. And so for the ones that stood the ground and says, I, you know, I have to maintain my integrity and I have to sentence you to life in prison. I wonder how they slept at night. I wonder how they got up every day and got threats and went to work like, you know, nothing happened. Like I just I just finished sentencing this person to life in prison. And I didn't get sentenced to life in prison once. Like I got sentenced twice because I, I won my appeal and I, I really to this to this day don't understand my judge and his his matter of thinking, he said, in the first trial, he said, I'm going to give, give you room to appeal this. I'm, you know, no, no, you can't um, submit that into evidence. And, you know, he was just doing all kind of weird things. And then he says, um, I really want to make sure that you can have room for an appeal. And so we go back for the appeal and um, he says, I'm only doing this because your boss is making, because my boss is making me do this. So, um, let's hear the evidence today. And it kind of kind of went to sleep on me. And when he woke back up, he says, you know, um, I want the record to reflect, like I said, at the original sentencing. I feel that after a few years of, of being incarcerated, that Ms. Brown will come out and be a productive member of society. However, my hands are tied this government, will you depart from the life sentence? And they said no, both times. He said, I just want to make sure that the record reflects that I, this is what I have to do. And I hereby sentence you to life in prison. So, um, again, I, I didn't hear that one time. I heard it twice. So let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, the time you spent in prison. Uh, was it 21 years total? Was that what it was? I'm 21 in a couple of months. I'm not, a lot of people could tell you down to the second. Um, 
I think I stopped counting when I was told that I was going home. Um, what did you lean on? Uh, what got you through that time in prison? I was raised in the church. Um, I have pastors, preachers, bishops, teachers, evangelists um, of a variety of, of different um, lay people within the, in the, in the religious um, place. And, and so when I moved, I, I felt I was sheltered. So moving down here by myself was like, wow, okay, I'm a little free. But I knew that there was only one thing or only one person I could trust, and that was God through this whole time. And so I remember um, the day that I was sentenced, I got up that morning, and what I considered my act of faith, I packed my room. Because that's what most people did when it was time for them to go to jail, go to the courts, and they knew that it was just a bench appearance. So when they got finished with court today, they was going to return to the cell and just leave. And so I, I, I was packing my room, and I just began to cry and pray and tell God that I messed up my life, and that um, I would be a servant, and and I'm going to leave the, the paperwork alone, and I'm going to trust Him. And at some point in time. I believe he was going to bring me through this situation, and um, he did. I I went to the, to the prison, and I, I well, I started in the jail. I would do different things um, for Christmas. People were down and depressed, and I just went in my room and I prayed. I was like, God, how do I help them? How do I help them through this this process? How do I help them know that it's going to be okay? And so I ran out and I got together with the ladies, and we put together a play, I wrote a skit, and we put together a program, and we had a program, and just for those few moments, we forgot where we were, and we were able to just come together and um, and just release all of that was that we were holding inside because we were missing our families, we were missing our children. Um, here I was, my first Christmas away from my children. And um, not knowing when I would ever spend another Christmas with them. And so it was really hard. Um, and from that Christmas until the last Christmas in prison, I always put on a production because I knew that was the hardest time of the year for people, um, for the women, you know, missing their children and, you know, having those empty arms and a, and a, a womb that never didn't know when the next time they would be able to have a child, if ever. And some this, that never had children because they came to the system so young. And so I just took the responsibility of encouraging others and uh, ministering to others and, and doing, like I said, the plays and whatever I could do to make my time go by, I did it. I studied, I um, took some classes, and um, I don't know how many jobs I had because I would leave one job and go somewhere else and work, but I just kept extremely busy. But my foundation, my strength, my ability to maintain, it all came from God, studying and praying and um, just being a leader in, in the Christian community. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting that in that time of you know, great personal suffering, Instead of turning inward and really feeling sorry for yourself, which I mean, 
There's no problem with that. I mean, that's that's a tough situation. I'm sure a lot of people in that situation would would do that, would would feel sorry for themselves, and that's understandable. But you turned around and instead really looked at the people around you and tried to find a way to help them. So I think, I mean, that's just really commendable, and a uh, that's that's just awesome. Thank um, you. I, I want to ask you about your clemency and and the process and when did you how did you find out about the Can Do Foundation and what role did they play in getting your clemency? One year, this lady appears on the compound. I wish I remembered her name, but I don't. Um, she she befriended my a friend of mine, and my friend kept telling me, "You need to meet my friend. You need to meet my friend." She uh, was sentenced to life in prison. You wouldn't be able to tell. Um, you you got to meet her. You got to meet her. So um, one day I happened to be in the rec area, and we actually met, and we started talking. And she says, you know, um, there was a lady that just moved on my my block back home, and she found out that I came to prison, and she sent me a letter. And she has this organization called Can Do Clemency, and I think you need to meet her. So she set us up on an email, and we started corresponding. That's Amy Pova. We started, convers- you know, emailing back and forth, and she shared her story with me about receiving the clemency and how she felt that I should file the paperwork, and that was in 09. And I was like, okay, I, yes, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And I would start the paperwork, and then it was like, oh, this just doesn't feel right. Um, and so this went on until 2014. And so... We hear the announcement that President Barack Obama was going to start the um, clemency project, and uh, she immediately got on the email and sent me email and said, "This is your time. Now I understand why you waited. This is your time. You must file your clemency." And so um, things just began to move so fast after that. And I tried to get paperwork together, and I couldn't get my paperwork out in the mail because of the fact that it was. Um, fought that Friday. And so I was really hurt and disappointed because I felt like if I was going to be one of the ones to receive the clemency, I needed to get my paperwork in ASAP. Um, that evening, I um, received a letter from another organization that was very instrumental in, in my being released as well. And that's the National Clearing House for the Defense of Better Women. They sent me a letter and told me they, they had actually gotten me a lawyer that was going to write my motion. So I, I, was, I, I was beside myself to think that, you know, after all of those years, I still had someone that believed in me, <clears throat> excuse me, that believed that I deserved freedom because they was helping me for like 15 years. And so while they worked on the lawyer and getting everything done, I was with um, Amy Pova and she was, I did my profile and it went up on the website and um, people were reading my story from what was there. And a guy named Casey Tolan um, read my story online and told me he wanted to interview me. And so he came to, by this time, Danbury had closed the rear house in, in, in Connecticut but he wanted to interview someone in New York, and we just so happened to have just been relocated to a detention center in Brooklyn, New York. So he came over to the detention center, and he interviewed me. Um, the article came out December 11th, and December 18th, I received word that um, 
I received my clemency. Amy Pova had traveled to the White House on several occasions, and she took my um, my poster with her. She made these posters of uh, America's 25 most deserving women to receive clemency, and I was one of them. And she would take my poster with her wherever she went, as, as well as the others, and she would just hold them up and say, these women deserve to come home. I mean, she was uh, such a strong soldier in this 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 war against um so many women being incarcerated and so she did uh she had my my post out there again she was able to get my interview and so um she was extremely instrumental in in my game and my clemency yeah it's just an incredible incredible foundation incredible things that uh that amy povis can do foundation does and I'm, i'll link yeah. to it in the show notes i know we've We've uh, we've had on Amy, of course, and we've had on Malik King. We've had on others who uh, were helped by the Can Do Foundation. Yeah. I wanted to ask you next about, you know, after you get out of prison, you were invited to go to the White House, and and I saw a a, a recording of the the event they had there where they where they interviewed you along with I think three three other people that got commutations from, from the president, but. Around that time, you also got to go to lunch with President Obama. Is that right? Yes, yes. Can you just just tell us about that? And uh, was there anything that that you asked President Obama, or anything that he that he said to you that that's notable? No, um, I just I thanked him. Um, what an honor it was to be able to. <clears throat> excuse me. I, I made reference to my my belief and my trust in God, and so someone told me about a story. Someone told me that I reminded them of Joseph in the Bible. And um, just to sum that up quickly, Joseph was in prison and he got out because he was summoned by the king and he went before the king and, and they ate together and then he became second in command. And so I followed his story the entire time I was in prison and pretty much my life meant it, it was the same as his. So I was told that I was going to the White House to speak because it was reentry week. But when I got to Washington that day, um, our plane was late, another lady and myself. And so we, our travels was being monitored by someone. And so we ended up at Busboy and Poet. And I said, what are we doing here? I thought we were going to the White House. And so I was in Washington the week prior for a FAM um, program, their anniversary. And I met um, Elias. And he came up and he introduced himself. And he says, I worked. I'm on staff for the White House, and I was like, oh, my gosh. And then behind him came Neil Eckersberg, who said, I was the one that put your motion on the president's desk. We're glad you're home. So when I got to the restaurant, here come Elias, and he was like, hi, Ramona. And so I'm like, what is going on? And he says, well, you know, we just invited you here. I said, those are Secret Service men outside. I know who they are. And he started laughing, and so he collected our phones and told us that the president was coming to take us to lunch. Um, he told me when we got outside to walk up to the military and the president was going to invite us. So when the military came up, uh, President Obama steps out of the car and he says, hey, Ramona, come on, I'm taking you to lunch. Well, I, I thought it was faint to, to know that here is the most powerful person calling me by my name and inviting me to lunch. Um, I'll never forget that moment. We go inside and 
I'm sitting down and I'm just at awe with what was going on around me. And then I felt the chair next to me move. And when I looked, it was the president taking the seat right next to mine. And so here I am sitting next to the king and we're breaking bread. And he treated us like it was the monthly luncheon. He was just having a meeting with us and so relaxed, so calm, like, you know, here I am in society and most people don't want to talk to me because of the record, but I'm sitting next to the king and he sees nothing wrong with none of us that are sitting there. He is treating us like he treats his staff, his family. It was such a beautiful moment. And um, he did want to know how was I um, re-entering? What was the process like? And I began to tell him how I couldn't find a place to stay. I was supposed to live with my son, but because of the record, it wasn't going to allow me to live with him. And he said, is this true? Is this, is this what's going on? And so his staff says, yes, you know, not many people understand that after we've served our time, we're ready to come out into society and live. Not everybody want to go back. And I'm learning now why most people go back because we don't have any opportunities out here that, that would give us the opportunity to live to work, to do the things that we needed to do in order to survive. And so from that conversation, he discussed with HUD that it's discrimination because of the people that are most often um, incarcerated. And even though he, he kind of rewrote the policy, it's still something that we're challenging today. So that was really important to me that he listened and then he acted upon it. He heard me. And a lot of times we speak and people, you know, they, they act like they're listening, but they don't hear you. But he heard me. He heard us. He heard each and every one of us speak. And he acted upon everything that we presented to him that day. That's a that's a very cool story. Um, and that's, that's a unique story. There's not a lot of people that can share, share a story <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, but, but, but I'm glad you brought up the uh, the issue of felons reintegrating into society and carrying that label, uh, carrying that label with you, because yeah. I mean everyone that I talk to that is that has done time in prison, they carry that felon label with mm-hmm. them, and it's I think more than anything, I mean there is there's some small things that can be done at least with with government jobs and things like that. They have they <clears> banned <throat> the box movement, so you don't have to to check the box. But a lot of it is just it's just educating the public on how broken this criminal justice system is. And there's, there's a lot of people out there that they never should have been in prison in the first place, like, like yourself and you serve 20 years and then you still get out and you're still suffering from that. So I think more than anything, it's just, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I have this podcast is Mm -hmm. just try to communicate to people to get to, you know, get to hear your story, get to hear from someone like you. And I mean, it's it's uh it's something that needs to change. So it does. Um, it really does. It really does. And we're hopeful that using um this platform that you have, you've extended to us to be able to share our story and every opportunity that we get to share our story, we're hoping that we can change the hearts and the minds of those that are listening that that believe that we should have this stigma upon us and, and never have it removed. Um I work again, you know, talking about 
life of Joseph and being his second in command, I never thought that I would be working with the government. I never thought that I would be working for the city of Charlotte. And I am. I'm working in the HR department, and my passion is to help those that are formerly incarcerated as they reenter. I came out into this into this place, and what what society doesn't realize when you incarcerate a person, I don't care how long it is, when you incarcerate them, they're placed in a sense of a time walk. I came outside. I did not know how to ride the train. I didn't know how to pay for my ticket. I I wouldn't open up a bank account, and I'm feeling good about myself, but I needed some money one day. And I walk up to the ATM machine. I had no idea what to do with that card. I'm looking at the machine, and I'm sure whatever cameras was looking back at me, like, what is she getting ready to do? Well, I couldn't do anything because I didn't know how to use the card. I have problems um, just doing things that you would never, ever consider. It's just second nature to you. So when I come out, when I came out, I really had to learn how to live. I had to go from 1995 to 2016 in a moment's time. I had my children, my nieces, throwing phones at me while we're riding because I rode back home with my family. And each one of them are passing their phones to me. Auntie, this is what this means. That's what this means. You have to do this when you're making your phone call. Do it like this. And, and it was so overwhelming because I did not know how, how to do these things, simple things. I did not know how to do these simple things. And it was really, it was hard. And so now that I'm in the city of Charlotte, I fight for the rights of people that are re-entering. I believe that, yes, it's a great thing that they've banded the box. But I presented a proposal to my supervisors. I want to recreate the image of the formerly incarcerated people. Because when we go for, for interviews, it doesn't matter that the box is gone if your heart is still hardened against giving us a second chance. And so prayerfully next month, we will, I will be able to stand before the department heads, the hiring managers, and and tell them it's time for us to recreate this image. You cannot hold our past against us when we're trying to create a future. And so um, it's it's a privilege for them to accept my proposal and to work with me to be together this meeting so that I can address these issues that we have in the city of Charlotte. Well, I'm glad you're in a position to to do that, um, and, and and I'm glad you. You found a job where they were able to, you know, they weren't, they weren't stopped by by looking at your past, and they gave you a chance. That's that's fantastic. I want to thank you, Ramona, for coming on the show, sharing your story. Uh, do you have any any last parting words for my audience before I let you go? I just uh, just one quick thing. When it comes to housing, we need to make sure that there's housing available. It took me 14 months to find one person to say, yes, I can rent from them, 14 months. And this is important. We want to be independent. We want to be able to regain our status in life. We want to be free. And we just need someone to say, yes, I don't need your money. We don't need some money. We just need a helping hand to get to where we need to be self-sufficient. Thank you for this opportunity to be on your show. And I do pray that someone listening will hear something to make them look at formerly incarcerated people differently.
Thank you, Ramona. Thank you. Hope you all enjoyed that interview with Ramona Brandt. And also, I hope that you'll you'll share it. It's a very important story. Hope you share it with, with your networks on, on Facebook and, and Twitter and, uh, and really get the word out there. Now, actually, my, my last two episodes here, both tremendous stories, both very important stories, and they almost didn't happen because the only way that I could arrange for these interviews was to use my Skype, which is how I do all my interviews, but I had to actually call them, call their cell phones. Jamel Nettles had an issue. He actually could not figure out how to use Skype. Uh, that is a, it's a problem we talk about with Ramona. People come out of prison. They don't have any any training. They don't know how to use today's technology. And that was a problem with Jamel. Ramona's issue, there was just some technical difficulties. And I apologize for the audio issues throughout this interview. But I had a decision to make. It's either push through, get this interview get this story out there, or potentially the interview doesn't happen at all. So sometimes you got to make tough decisions in this podcasting business. We always strive here at Lions of Liberty to give you the absolute best quality sound. And if I didn't meet that today, I apologize. I did a lot of hard work to try to make this as listenable as absolutely possible. And I hope it passed the test for you. If it didn't, please give us another chance next week. I want to talk briefly about Barack Obama, about President Obama. Ramona spoke glowingly of President Obama. And the more, the more people that I've met, the more people that I've interviewed who were granted clemency by Barack Obama, as I've heard their stories, as I've gotten to know how much of a positive impact them getting clemency, how much they deserve clemency, how many people who are locked up in prison for sometimes just on selling marijuana charges or ridiculous conspiracy charges. How many people are still even in there? I am thankful that Barack Obama was president to let at least some of these people out to live their lives, to be with their families, to add value to society, not to just be locked up and and, and waste away and not be able to make an impact. So I'm thankful that Barack Obama did that, and you have to give him credit. He was better than any other president with about granting clemency, about pardoning, about getting nonviolent offenders out of prison and back into society. So you absolutely got to give him credit there, and we got to start putting some pressure on Donald Trump. Um, it, this just, you know, it's, it's good to see Congress pushing back this past week. Uh, Congress passed a bill, House of Representatives passed a bill that if it is signed into law, would undo what Jeff Sessions has done. It would actually put back into law President Obama's law for civil asset forfeiture, which Jeff Sessions tried to unroll. It would roll that roll that law back and and push uh, push the Justice Department out of the business of uh, civil assets forfeiture and, and going after people's um, assets and and, uh, and property. That's excellent. Uh, we need to find ways to push back against the Trump administ- administration to run candidates, to get people who are running for public office to talk about clemency, to talk about criminal justice reform, to make it a main tenant of their policy stance. So we, we've got a lot of work to do, and uh, I've got some things I'm thinking about, and I will I will keep you posted on that. I don't have a lot more to talk about, guys. I just want to really encourage you. If you're not a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride, please consider joining. 
one of the biggest bonuses of the Pride, and you get it at any level that you join, is you get access to our bonus material. And this past week on Monday, Mark Clare released his Scott Horton interview, which was outstanding. I love Scott Horton. I can listen to Scott Horton talk about foreign policy all day, every day. He's he's fantastic. He's he's phenomenal. There's actually another interview, another part to that interview, where members of the Lions of Liberty Pride got to ask Scott Horton questions. So there's another uh, 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes with Scott Horton answering those questions, talking about North Korea. He answered one of my questions that I asked to. I, I asked about about Russia, the obsession with Russia, the obsession with Russia. So if you want to hear that, you got to join the Pride. You can join it for $25 a month. That is our highest level. That is our Lion Guard level. That is where you get a weekly conference call with us. You get two free t-shirts. You get a koozie. You get all the exclusive content. You get access to our secret Facebook group, $10 a month. You do not get to take part in our monthly conference call, but you do get a free t-shirt, free koozie, all the uh, exclusive bonus content. You get the Facebook group, $5 a month. You don't get the free stuff. But you do get the exclusive content. You do get in the secret Facebook group. Um, anything and everything is really appreciated. And as I talked about at the beginning about audio at the very beginning, current Lions of Liberty Pride members have funded and given us the ability to upgrade all of our mics. So we should all sound very good. We should all sound pr- pretty much on the same level. At least uh, at least myself and Mark and Brian and Howie and Rico and, and JB. Um, and that's because of you guys out there funding, uh, funding, funding us through the Lions of Liberty Pride. So we really do appreciate it. One more thing, a very important thing. One of our Pride members, actually, Daniel Lee, his home and a couple of his family members' homes were hit and uh, really suffered a lot of damage from Hurricane Harvey down in Houston. There is a project in Donor C that Daniel actually set up, which is helping to fund repairs for his house, his mom's house, uh, other family members' houses. And his goal is more than halfway funded, at least time of recording, more than halfway funded. Getting closer, I really want to encourage you to go check it out. You can just, the easiest way to do it is to download the Donor C app. It's in the Apple Store, it's in, it's in Google Play. Download the Donor C app. And it, it'll be on the uh, the front page there, scrolling down. Yeah, you'll see it. There's a picture of a, of a, of a truck underwater. Click on it, and you'll see you'll see Daniel's project, and he's posting he's posting progress of the repairs he's already making, the damage that he had to his to his home. So that's that's the cool thing about Donor C. I mean, we've uh, we've gotten behind a lot of projects all across the world in Haiti and Africa. Everywhere. And one of the cool things is you get updates from it. Once you donate to a project, you get updates through email. I get updates all the time for all these projects about how they're, you know, when they're actually building it, they update, they update and tell you about it. And then once it's built, they, they show it being used. So Daniel is providing updates for all of, all of the repairs, all of the necessary repairs that are being done to his house. So definitely check out that project and please consider tossing a little bit of money to our good friend, Daniel Lee. That's all I got, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, one more thing. If you haven't joined the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook, get in the Lions of Liberty Forum. Easy to join. Go to Facebook.com, search bar at the top, Lions of Liberty Forum, click join. We have one simple question that we ask you before you can come in. You have to tell us where you came from, how you heard about us, how you heard about the podcast, and you answer that question, and you're in. It's fantastic. So join the forum. 
This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Thank you.